Pete and James, uh, I believe you're aware of what happened with Resolution 9 at the Southern Baptist Convention several weeks ago. But I, I want to just read through some statements that I have taken from that resolution. It's quite long uh, to read through, but I'm just going to go through some of the main points that make the case that the committee was trying to make. And this is addressing critical race theory and intersectionality, of which I think we would say that you have done more deep diving on this particular issue than just about anyone else. Let me start. Whereas, and this is from Resolution 9 from the Southern Baptist Convention, whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Whereas evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and sufficiency of scripture have employed selective insights from critical race, race theory and intersectionality to understand multifaceted social dynamics. Whereas general revelation accounts for truthful insights found in human ideas that do not explicitly emerge from scripture and reflects what some may term common grace, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress, redress the root causes of the social ills that they identify, so stating that they do identify them, which result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences. Resolved that critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to scripture, not as transcendent ideological frameworks. Can you just give me your opinions on hearing that? I would tell you that you have a very lovely wooden horse sitting outside your gate. Every word of that sounds wonderful. Nice varnish on the wood and what's inside is a hot mess. That's, it, it is letting something in that is in many respects parasitic and in many respects designed to be divisive and to increase salience, awareness, uh, focus upon issues that have a political nature tied to race politics for the purposes of pushing identity politics into whatever it's trying to be inserted. In this case, the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever organization wants to adopt this subordinate to that. Which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Right. Um, it's, it comes in a pretty package. It, none of that sounds terrible and it's all superficially true. It is a tool for analyzing race relations in society. There are other tools that one might consider to be more just, rigorous, right, but that. it is a tool. And what that tool's composed of is, let's take a look at the word critical here. What does the word critical mean? The word critical means in this context, looking at an extreme closeness, analyzing particularly the use of language, history, etc., in order to make problems related specifically to oppression more visible 
so that people will want to enact a revolution to overturn the power dynamics that are alleged to be a part of it. Uh, that's critical. Critical means, in a sense, complaining about in a specific way to affect a radical political agenda, to make problems visible that you wouldn't otherwise see. Now, obviously, there can be benefit to making problems visible, but it is a method that is specifically designed to focus on problems and only on problems. Then there's the theory side, critical race theory. This theory is not the word theory that you might hear from scientists. It's not the word theory that you might hear from, uh, you know, a lay person. I was like, oh, I have a theory about... This is a specific meaning of the term theory uh, in the sense of sociology or social philosophy would be a better way to put it, which is supposed to be some kind of an explanatory structure. And in this case, critical race theory is directly derived from a critical legal theory, which does the same thing with law and tries to pick apart where the law is has been insufficient, make problems visible in order to affect a political change, and B, postmodern theory. And postmodern theory is this idea, among many other things, that knowledge is produced within various communities unique to that community that cannot then be evaluated from outside of that community. So in the case of critical race theory, the way that gets applied is that, say, a person of whatever race, people of whatever race, I should say, not a person of, roughly have the same experiences in life of oppression based on their racial status or of dominance if that race happens to be one that's considered dominant, white. and they roughly have the same experiences in life, so they roughly should have the same view of oppression, and that gives them special insight that is not available to anybody else. And so you have to defer to that as though it is true. You can't possibly question that, or doubt that, or demand a different form or more rigor or another la layer or level of analysis, because that would be to foist another culture's uh, process of legitimizing ideas upon a racial culture that doesn't necessarily embrace that. So the claim would be that that group, that identity group, has knowledge that can't be questioned from outside of that group. So you have no option other than to agree with it. Mm. Mm. That's critical race theory. Right. And then the danger of, well, I think the first thing is that when you take a look at a tool, you, I think the first question you have to, to ask yourself is, is this a tool of construction or is it a tool of destruction? Yeah, a jackhammer is a tool. Right, <laughs> exactly. Whichever that solvent is that you can buy that'll dissolve any glue you've ever put down is a tool in the, in the sense. Um, that's a real issue. Right. Uh, the intersectional framework is one where you start subdividing identity groups to try to claim, so you as a human being, as an individual, mm -hmm. are not to be viewed as an individual with your own agency. You're to be viewed as an individual who is a combination of whichever identity groups you're in, and each of those has its own essential experience mm -hmm. of oppression particularly, that gives you the lived experience, as they call it, that you have, that confers knowledge 
upon you. And then that is intimately related to the power dynamics, not just as they happen to be in society now, but as they are theorized to be based on history, based on the hypothesis that a power dynamic once in place always works to justify and maintain itself and really can't be corrected. That, that idea is, was from Audre Lorde, was articulated as the master's tools cannot or will not dismantle the master's house. Uh, so it's a, it's a heuristic, or as its, its originator, its progenitor, Kimberly Crenshaw put, a practice of trying to winnow out more and more specific special interests within uh, a population based on their identity markers and to claim that they have unique experiences that give them unique insight into the world that everybody else can't possibly criticize and have to listen to and accept yeah, I, by fiat. I think it's important at this stage to unpack a little bit what the master's tools are. Why don't you... So some of the master's tools in this case would be reason, logic, science, evidence, Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. The, uh, the argument from within critical race theory is that the people who invented those methods of legitimizing knowledge, who happen to be white, western, males, straight, and so what, what have you, built the method of legitimizing knowledge that we call science, reason, logic, exegesis, whatever happens to be specifically for the purpose of understanding knowledge the way they want to understand knowledge so that their power is maintained, so that they can exclude what they call other ways of knowing. The knowledges, plural, of other cultures that within those cultures are equally true, right. and they say that there's no external objective location to which you could retreat or back up and look and say, okay. No God's eye view. No God's eye view from nowhere is what they actually yeah. sometimes call that. It's the God's eye view from nowhere is what they refer to as the objective stance. And they say that such a thing's not possible. There's only the possibility of, of understanding a thing from within your cultural milieu. Right. And your cultural milieu has its methods of making knowledge claims and you can't evaluate one from another. So there's no way to say my reading, if for, for this context, my reading of scripture is more authoritative than yours. My reading of history is more authoritative than yours. It's not possible to make such claims because somebody else making it from another culture might say, well, I see it differently. And because you don't understand the oppressions and the ways that we've been excluded from the conversation over however many hundreds of years of history, it's not possible for you to even understand what we're talking about. So you just have to accept by fiat what we're saying. So yeah, it's even worse than Tom Nichols' idea of the death of expertise. It's, and, and this relates to many of the things that we talked about the other day, about research justice, about reality tunnels. Now you can see why someone who has this reality tunnel is way down here in the, alpha, in the gamma quadrant, and the people reason, evidence, et cetera, are way up there in the alpha quadrant. So the, it really speaks at a very fundamental level to how you make better more discerning judgments about, well, what anything, not just morality, literally anything you can think of. And there is a certain epistemological tool set that comes along with this, standpoint epistemology. It even has a name for it. Yeah, standpoint epistemology. So the idea really is like a conspiracy theory with no conspirators. It's that society, each cultural group within society has its own use of language, its own means of producing knowledge. Mm -hmm 
and that's only valid within that construct. So if you want to appeal to logic, to evidence, to history, to whatever, they can say, well, we have a different logic reason and so on. You exclude emotion is a huge one. You exclude emotion from being a pathway to legitimate knowledge. Yeah, and, and, and that creates several problems. Among the problems it creates are, and this is what I would have asked Thaddeus Russell at the debate, so when the Klan comes to put a cross on your black neighbor's lawn and light it ablaze, are you just saying, well, you know, that's their truth, that's just their story that they have, and I have my story, and you have your story, and what? Well, so, I mean, it, I would be morally horrified, that's why I yelled out from the audience, answer the question, because I knew for a fact the moment that Hicks asked the question, it would just be obfuscation, it would be anything but an honest, straightforward answer to the question, because that's almost what he has to do to maintain a position that's inherently indefensible. But right. even beyond that, when you start thinking about what that means, absent the, if, if it's possible to bracket the moral horrors, it's just practical, it's impossible to bracket the, the, the physical horror show. And what if you have a dental pain? What if you have tooth pain? What are you gonna do? Go to the, are you gonna go to the witch doctor who's gonna sing a rain dance? I mean, the whole system is set up so that, that actually underscores the question, is this just verbal behavior? Do people actually believe this? Or do they just give it lip service? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think that what you can see and some of the things that you've just stated are evident within uh, New Testament scholarship right now at the conservative evangelical reform level. Mm -hmm. To actually derive the truth, you must go through the different standpoint epistemologies because they might have the real truth as opposed to an objective truth. Right, so let me talk about standpoint epistemology, giving it kind of an analogy so people can understand it because it's a really counterintuitive idea for a lot of people. So standpoint epistemology, to speak kind of philosophically and broadly without the analogy, is this idea that how you are situated in society, meaning how you are situated as an as a identity, and how that identity is related to power in society as written by theory in terms of how power works dictates what you can and cannot know. A good way to understand standpoint epistemology is to think of it kind of like colorblindness that's caused by having a various identity group privilege. Okay, so if the idea is that if you are in the dominant group, you live in a world from the perspective of the dominant in a dominant world, so you have one perspective, the dominant perspective. If you are a marginalized group, you have the marginalized perspective while living in the dominant world, so you also have the dominant perspective as well as a marginalized perspective, suggesting you have information, which is the experience of oppression in this system that other people don't have. This has a degree of, of sense to it. There is something to this, and it, it behooves us to listen to things that have been marginalized and excluded. But listening is not the same as believing. Hear out, investigate, that's a different thing from listen and believe. Shut up, listen and believe is even further down that path. So you can think of it like colorblindness. If you happen to be the intersection of all the dominant things, the most dominant things, white, straight, male, western, able-bodied, thin, fit, whatever they happen to be, then it's like you can only see in grayscale. You see the world, everything's in the colors that you live in. You have only grayscale vision. Everything's in black and white. But then 
say that you're a woman instead. That's like being able to pick up red. Right. So now you can see more of the world. And we can look at this building, we can say, oh, those bricks are very organized and well, nice and blah, blah, blah. But if we had a person who can see red, you say, oh, it's red brick. But we couldn't possibly know that without somebody to tell us. How do we know it's not blue or green? Or what are those, what do those words even mean if we actually can only see them grayscale? Now suppose it's a black woman. An intersected identity, this is intersectionality and how it uses standpoint epistemology to justify why people of marginalized identities have a special status that have to be listened to and believed. Now it's like adding in green, so the person can see red and green. Add in like disability status or a sexual minority, now they can see in shades of blue as well. You can add in, you know, we're gonna start running out of colors, but you can just continue to add more dimensions, like they can see an ultraviolet, they can see an infrared too. You can add more and more layers of depth that you get the more intersected identities you have. And standpoint epistemology is the idea that it is possible, that, that the people who have more experiences of marginalization therefore have more access to see the world and understand the world and access truth that people who live with dominance simply cannot possibly understand. And the belief is such that this is so pernicious and so total, in the same sense that, the same total as you see in total depravity, uh, totalizing you know, over everything, infecting every part of your being, privilege infects every part of your being, that you can't possibly understand the experience of somebody who can see in a different color than you can, just as if you were truly colorblind and have no idea like they say that there's some people who are so-called tetrachromats who can detect a fourth basic color. Very few, very, very rare. They're all women for various biological reasons. And it's like that. They have the ability to see a richness of color that nobody else has. And that's what standpoint epistemology connects to oppression. That's what intersectionality uses to claim that the oppressed person has knowledge that you cannot possibly understand and you just have to believe pretty much literally on faith, on their testimony. That some people's testimony, because of who they are and their identity, uh, is superior to that of other people. And the only thing more privileged can do, people can do is listen. They can't understand, they actually can't even fully empathize because they're outside of it. And you have to be able to meet somebody to empathize. And they can't adjudicate between the, competing testimonies. Exactly. Mm. So if you look at the, this from the perspective of this is a faith, that states that it has believed in objective truth, has, has objective standards, has a confessional process, has an exegetical method that it's been committed to for years, then all of the sudden, with a crisis being reported that we must deal with these things now, uh, and this is brought in as an analytical tool in terms of, in terms of understanding how we need to deal with these things, where else would you see that happen? And what would you say? What would you say? Okay, go ahead, Pete. Well, you know, I was laughing, but the, the, the way that you explain that, it really is the Trojan horse. But it's even, in a sense, worse than a Trojan horse because what it has in it is our horrific parasitizing ideologies that almost like vampire ideologies. But we see this in the academy. We've already seen it played out. And if all you would need to do is you would need to look at a system where it's played out and look at multiple systems where it's played out, plot the trajectories of those, and then ask yourself, what is different about the, the, any other system that could withstand this Trojan horse 
proselytizing that none of our secular institutions could withstand. Yeah, a good example would be the, the Evergreen State College in um, Olympia, Washington, which melted down pretty famously a couple of years ago. It's not difficult to track exactly how this worked. What happened was critical race theory and intersectionality were brought in as core tenants in what they called an equity plan for the college. Wait, can I, I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? Yes, of course. So that is one of the words that I think we have to talk about, and it's a key word when people hear equity, they have to know that it's not what they think it is. It doesn't right. mean what they think it means, and that's time to start paying attention. When you hear the word equity, boom, okay, go ahead. Yeah, because if, if equity meant the same thing as people think, which is equality, there would be synonyms, and you wouldn't have to use the word equity. Exactly. Uh, equity is defined to mean adjusting shares so that people are made equal. It is equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. Uh, it's, you know, jimmying the system so that everything comes out fair on the end, no matter what the inputs were going in, uh, effort, merit, etc. cetera, uh, plus the starting place question. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the Evergreen State College, they introduced this with the equity plan, and the whole campus more or less adopted it with one exception, Professor Brett Weinstein, who did not accept it and vocally did not accept it and ended up the center of a riot. And uh, he wasn't fired from the college, but they ended up leaving the college uh, in not a good way. Uh, and the campus devolved literally to the point where angry students were roving campus in mobs with bats. Right. And they were pulling people out of the cars outside the college, presumably looking for Brett Weinstein or other people who they might have associated with them. And you had this complete meltdown of anything like order or anything like education, utterly and totally. And the reason is because critical race theory has this nice Trojan horse. Even when I described that colorblindness standpoint epistemology, it's easy to say there might be something to that. And this is the trick is, hmm, if you think about it, there's something there. Yeah, there's something, but they're asking for a lot more than what that nice something is. That's the difference between listen and shut up and listen and believe. And so what came with it, with the equity plan, was a number of the more recent developments in critical race theory and intersectionality as they're applied to education, which include concepts, especially like white fragility. The idea is from critical race theory, that are imported on this are that racism is everywhere. It is always, it is imminent throughout society. And so anytime there's anything that can be read, that's the critical part, anything that can be read as racist is a manifestation of a systemic problem that lays just beneath the surface and occasionally pops up. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So therefore, every instance of racism is a, isn't some jerk did something racist. And we're talking about the most possibly small, close reading, maybe somebody could construe it as racist because they said they were offended and you can't deny their truth because the standpoint epistemology, it could be the smallest tiny thing. It's not an example of a guy who transgressed or like even me saying a guy instead of a person. It's not proof that I've transgressed. It is proof that latently I have sexism that's part of my entire worldview that's been baked into me by the way that I've been conditioned to think by a whole society that's infected with this that can only be cured by revolution, which is what happened at Evergreen and caused it to melt down. Right. Because it comes out with these ideas like racism is everywhere always, it's imminent. Everyone participates in it. Whites automatically benefit from it and can't help but do so. So they're sort of extra complicit. The only way to deal with that is to do anti-racist work. That's what they call it, anti-racist. That's like, think of it almost like a brand name. It's a very specific term. 
It's not this general term, and oh, that's what I think it means. It means that you must constantly look for ways in which you and others around you are participating in the deep system that's just under the surface and always hiding and hides in subtle ways. So you have to buy into the ideology- Systemic racism. Of systemic racism. And constantly look for it in yourself and in others and point it out to make it more visible so that you might lead people to want to affect the revolution. So this, rev this, uh, particularly the, I can't remember the plank you read, I think it was the last one. It's not really asking people to adopt what they think it's asking them to adopt. It's asking them to take in an entirely different worldview that's in many senses not only incompatible but will eat away the, tr the values that they have. Yeah, one of the core tenets is the work of anti-racism is never done. Never. You can't do it right. You no can't redemption. finish. And then... Never accomplished. Yeah. It's never, it can never be accomplished. And then they, they safeguard this off of these very, again, superficially interesting, at least, ideas like white fragility. White fragility is an idea that is from a scholar named Robin D'Angelo. She wrote the idea down in 2011. She's got a big book, 2018, about it. Big tour all around it. She speaks all over the place. Best I know she speaks book, to, by the way. Yeah, to a lot of churches she's spoken to. Um, the idea of white fragility is that if you in any way disagree with any of this critical race theory, if you in any way disagree, it's because you don't have the racial stamina to do the anti-racism work to constantly re-examine yourself and find your hidden racism that you automatically participate in. If you ignore it, that's a manifestation of your white fragility that's proving that you are complicit in the system and that you're unwilling to do the work. If you just go away from it, that's because you're too fragile to get engaged. You're unwilling to engage. And I bring up white fragility, but that's the tip of an iceberg that has characterized critical race and social justice scholarship for the past decade at least. And really going back, I would say, pushing back at least to 2004 or five, the scholarship has all been converging upon this idea that any kind of disagreement whatsoever is either a character failure, like literally participation in white supremacy grade character failure, a failure to be willing to engage because you can't handle it or you're fragile, you're, you're fragile your privilege has made you too weak, you've become too comfortable in your privilege to want to do the work to believe the system or that you are somehow actively complicit in it. Which, just parenthetically, you could substitute literally anything for white fragility. As Jim has said. Oh yeah, yeah, you, other forms of privilege, male fragility. If a woman comes up and says you're being toxically masculine and you say, I don't think I am, or they accuse you of hegemonic traditional masculinity like you saw in the American Psychological Association's report on how to deal with men and boys that came out uh, last year, uh, and you say, I, I don't think that's what this is. Or, you know, the things you're calling toxic masculinity in certain contexts certainly are a problem, but in other contexts, like, you know, a war, where we're literally defending our soil, or like we had happened to us the other night, where we're walking down the street and all of a sudden we see a sexual assault occurring. Right. And a couple of us decide to turn and intervene. That, Sometimes that willingness to go do that, this toxic masculinity uh, defend impulse, 
is valuable. To see that would be say, oh, well, that's male fragility. You're afraid to engage in your anti-patriarchy work. <laughs> right. There is no win. There's no way there's to win. No win. So let's say, in, in fact, fact, not only is there no win, there's only lo there's perennial loss. There's perennial losing. So let's say that you do capitulate. You go along with it, right? You did it wrong. No matter what you did, you did it wrong. Why? Because critical race theory, going back to its very founder, Derek Bell, law professor at Harvard, operates off of what's called the interest convergence theory, which leads them to rewrite history, but also to analyze events in terms of you would only possibly decide to go along with critical race theory as a privileged person, for example, or do the anti-racism work if you identify that it's in your best interest to do so as a white person, to position yourself, and these are technical terms, as a good white. Barbara Applebaum is another one of these major critical race and intersectionality educators, the pedagogy theory uh, scholars, and she had a book a couple of years ago called Being Good, Being White. And it's talking about how when you try to do the anti-racism work, unless you do it exactly to satisfaction, which is never quite possible, because of the critical thing, because of the interest convergence, it was actually in your interest. If you go and you try to make yourself less racist, and you go and you try to help a minority that you feel has been excluded and do whatever to, to help them out, now you're positioning yourself as a good white. You are trying to give yourself extra status in this new community that you didn't really earn. You're just trying to make yourself look good for so other people. Imagine, and back to the resolutions, imagine the incredible extra epistemological and ontological baggage that seemingly innocuous statement brings in. Right. To the point where today there are many articles and books and so forth that are within the evangelical community, this isn't on the fringe, that are asking the question, can a white person be saved? Can a white person legitimately be considered a Christian? Well, that's not surprising at all because the concept of privilege within critical race theory or intersectionality more generally, I should say, operates in exact parallel to total depravity. It is a form of power that corrupts you to want to maintain and preserve it and that conditions you, white fragility, to not be willing to engage with the hard spiritual work of undoing that. Right. So then the introduction of something that would be like a woke church, then if, you know, because you're coming from a perspective that's outside of the church, and you hear someone's now with these concepts and ideologies are legitimizing the idea of a woke church. I mean, think about it for just like this though. You have the idea, let's say that you adopt critical race tools, and you adopt the idea that somehow white privilege is a sin, complicity with the problem, and remember, everyone is complicit and whites benefit most, so that's a sin, it's a cardinal sin that's somehow attached to being white, whatever that actually means, given that people are all kinds of ethnicities and right. classified as white. But then the last tenet was, it's never done, it's never accomplished. So that's your sin, there's no way to work your sin off. There's no way to atone for your sin. There's no way, they say that, you know, become an ally. Well, allyship's problematic. Act in solidarity. Well, that's problematic. Get involved in research justice. Well, you probably did it wrong. Forward black voices. Well, how are you going to forward them without putting yourself in there somehow? It, the work is never done. So you have a sin that's, there's, there's no path if it's never done to be done. So if, if that's considered a, let's say, a damnable sin, how are you going to go to heaven? 
it's completely theologically consistent to make that argument if you want to adopt critical race theory as that kind of a tool. Right. Right. You were saying something before, Peter. Well, you wanted me to be completely honest. So the the problem. Let's forget about Christianity for a moment. Let's bracket that. Let's talk about Islam for a moment, or any other something. Right. Which not it's so, also being introduced into right, as well. Right. Right. Or something not so close to home that doesn't invoke a defensive posture. So let's say that there's another religion. Part of the danger, if, if you're not part of that religion, is to look at somebody who self-identifies as part of that religion and say, aha, he's not a real Muslim because he's not, he drinks alcohol, or he's not blowing stuff up, or in the most vulgar expression, or he's not doing X, Y, and Z. So I think we need to be very careful about looking at a religion and having the most fundamentalist interpretation of that religion when we're not belonging to that and looking and superimposing that on someone else. Okay, now let's come back to this. You mentioned the idea of a woke church. I'll be incredibly blunt with you. When I see members from the woke church, I'll say one thing before I drop the bomb. I understand that many people self-identify as Christians, liberation theology in the 90s, or I've, I've even spoken, there are, there are fringe, but there are lines of literature in which there are Christians who self-identify as Christians who don't believe in the historicity of Christ. Right. Now, Marcus Borg, yeah, well, John I mean, Cossum, okay, so that's straining Christianity, my... Which I, Right, that's hard the, for me. The fundamental tenets. Yeah, yeah. but you can self-identify as anything you w want. I mean, but, but now let's get back to the woke church. It's very difficult for me as an outsider when s somebody says that they participate in this. It is like there is an extra religion there. So it's less clear to me, and this is not an exegetical question. This is not like, oh, this person has this interpretation of scripture or this per No, this is a whole new thing. This is a whole, this is a, something else that's there. So this is a, it's not even a hybrid. It's like, it's, it's something else. And from the out, I'll just speak for myself, from the outside when I see this, this is not identifiable in any sense. It's even, I'm even gonna go a step beyond that. That's less identifiable as anything Christian than the guy who self, the, the woman, the person, the they, who self-identifies as a Christian who doesn't believe in the historicity of Jesus. Wow. So let's say that someone says, all right. And I'm an outsider. Right. So it's not like I'm, I have some kind of, you have to have this interpretation, you have to go through these rituals, you know, you, you, you have to have some, or, no, I don't this have any of that. This particular confession, et cetera, if you yeah. don't hold this particular tenet of belief and so yeah. forth, if you're not a because five Because I've Calvinist. seen, right how this ideology, this, it's like a mimetic ideology. It's, we think of evolution in terms of a strictly biological component, but there are evolutionary processes of ideas. I see how this has really spun, and again, the parasitize is really the best word, and it latches on to whatever cognitive structure one has, and it just morphs the content into something that's unrecognizable. But yet the, the sneakiest, the tro I love the Trojan horse thing, the sneakiest part about this is that 
to a person, these folks think that they're doing, I want to say God's work, but good things. Like, this is Dan Dennett's, the philosopher Dan Dennett, the atheist philosopher Dan Dennett from Tufts, idea of belief and belief. They believe in their beliefs. They believe that this is a good thing to hold these beliefs and to do this, so much so that there are, um, and you can parse out the differences. Basically, I would love to get someone here and just ask them to hierarchically prioritize some of these beliefs. Mm -hmm. So let's say that someone says, all right, we hear what you're saying, yeah. and we agree that hard intersectionality, the, the real hardcore uh, Kimberly Crenshaw understanding of things that it's being applied across the sciences everywhere within our society, we, we believe that that's too far, but we believe that there could be and tell me what you hear of this new term that I've heard several times now in the last couple months, but we, we believe in a soft intersectionality. As soon as you hear the word soft intersectionality, what it's does that- It's a better Trojan horse. It's nicer. I mean, depends on who's, who's saying this, but if I, were the, if I were the hardcore intersectional person, I would, I'd say, what is this? White people in the Southern Baptist Convention introducing soft intersectionality as some kind of palatable form for white people? Was it white intersectionality? Nice job. And that problematized that to the ground. It's just <laughs> white people trying to cash in on a thing that's popular now. Right. It, do you know how easy it is to be cynical about something? That's all this is. Yeah. It's, oh, well, this is interest convergence. It's white people trying to cash yeah. in on a and thing so that they can attract the youth or whatever. It's not, it's or not, look good for other people. Yeah, it's not just the cynicism, although it certainly is cynicism. It's the institutionalization of these things. So my guess is that the next step you'll see is how these ideas become institutionalized in, uh, within individual churches, organizations, etc. I'm telling you, it's inevitable. I guarantee it. Oh yeah. Well, and I would say that a lot of this was brought in because of the concepts that were introduced, well, let's say more of the strategies 10, 12 years ago, that look, when we look at the millennial generation and the generation that will be coming after that, the things that they care the most about when we've done our surveys is they care the most about social justice. Um, that the demographics of the United States and other areas throughout Europe, et cetera, is going to change. There's going to be a purposeful intent to change the demographics to, um, in many ways, to, to break or to fracture the strong cultural influences to really develop a more multicultural understanding, which eventually I believe will be a monoculture. But we understand that this is happening, so for us to go from what would be a 1950s model of strategic church uh, growth, we need to adopt really a 21st century looking at the realities of things. And if we want to actually exist as a faith within this, this whole societal construct, we have to move along with that change. <laughs> have fun with that. Right. <laughs> Just wait. Yo, wait. You know, you're, you don't buy in like correctly to intersectionality, which you can't possibly do if you're uh, white in particular, but really pretty much anybody, uh, because privilege is relative and somebody's always less privileged than you are and therefore can call you on it. Um, well, you're not a real Christian then. Good luck with that. Oh, what we need is uh, at, our, at our conferences and our churches and our high, uh, administrative or hierarchical structures of how things are governed. We need representation that's more diverse and inclusive. We need to make sure our churches are more inclusive. We need to promote equity in terms of how pastors, theologians, and so on are paid. So that's the, the big three, right? It's kind of like the holy trinity of this thing is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, 
some people have termed it diversity, inclusion, and equity. Which might spell die. Uh, <laughs> usually they don't. They usually call well, it EDI. I shouldn't laugh at that. I mean, that's, that's really a, a serious is. issue. But, the, but these Pernicious. words, again, are Trojan horses themselves. They sound nice, but what do they mean? Okay, we're going we're gonna to encourage diversity. What does diversity mean? Why do we need diversity? Do it mean that we need to bring in... You know, people have studied this sect of the, uh, this interpretation of the Bible and this one and get them to debate and try to clarify our understanding for our... No, it doesn't mean that. It means that black people have a fundamentally different view of the world, so you just need a black person. And all black people think the same, apparently. Well, they have the same experiences, is the idea. And that, that, that experience informs their thing. So you're going to have to start having, say, a... You're going to have to have a certain number of women. You're going to have to have a certain number of uh, black people. You're going to have to have a certain number of Hispanics. You're going to, okay, how? Well, equity would say that it's going to have to, most of the theories of equity say you're going to have to achieve parity. Right. How do you achieve parity? Well, actually, parity is not good enough because if you look historically, they've been excluded. So we're going to boost up a little bit from parity. Equity. That's equity. That's equity in application. That's not equality. That's equity. And then... You're going to have to have all of these things like, oh, look, your church, through whatever circumstances, maybe your church and it's, it has uh, very few people of whatever identity category that applied for such a thing, right? Yeah. They, they did, there just aren't applicants for whatever reason, for whatever position. So we're looking at administrative positions and all of this, or to rise up through the ranks. There's just not that many. Well, and actually, Matt Chandler, who is the pastor of, I believe it's called Village Church in Texas, which is a large multi-campus um, and I believe they might be trimming down on some of those campuses, but uh, Matt was traditionally understood as a reformed Calvinistic preacher. But what he has famously said is, look, if my leadership team comes to me and we're looking for a new leadership position at one of our churches, and they said, look, um, we have an Anglo 8 and an African-American 7. I'm going to take the African-American 7. Right. Over the purposes of, of understanding equity. And, exactly. Correct. And then what's going to happen is, is if, let's say that you hire every African-American applicant that applied, everyone to achieve equity as best you could, and you came out with like 6%, and then parity would have had to be 11% or 12% or whatever it is, and then beyond that, to make up for historical injustices, you really need to be hitting a 20% benchmark. The reason you have 6% is because you have a racist church. So guess what you're going to talk about? all the time. How are we secretly racist? How are we doing racist things? You aren't going to be able to get away from these conversations. That's the only thing that's really going to be allowed to be talked about. You're going to go talk about a Bible study. You're going to pull up a verse. Now you have to talk about it in terms of how that Bible verse it it governs it everything. comes up. How is racism involved in that? What does it say about racism? How is it how is it racist itself? <laughs> All they talk about. And if you don't talk about it, you're fragile. Because you're refusing to engage. You're right. not doing your anti-racism work racist. because you don't have racial stamina. Right. And you are probably doing so because you are part of that imminent Complicit. of racism that lays underneath everything. That's all you're allowed to talk about. That's the critical part. You keep looking and looking and looking and looking until you find examples of the imminence that you know is already there. But what do we call it? Hold up. What do you call it when you look for evidence of the thing that you claim is there? And then when you find the evidence, you say, okay, so everything, we know everything's racist. How do we know? Boom, something racist happens. See, that's a proof that everything's racist. That's called circular reasoning. You started with the thing you want. That's what you're basing it on. And 
the conversations will continue and what happens is, so the goal is to attract people to be with the 21st century, that's what the young people want. Oh my God, here's what's gonna happen. You have your congregation, it's gonna be made up of X percent, they're gonna be interested in this stuff. It's gonna be made up of Y percent, they hate this stuff. It's gonna be made up of people kind of close to each of those. Then it's gonna be made up of a wide majority of people who are there to go to church. They don't want their church to be about racial politics. They don't want to think about this all the time. They don't want to squabble. They don't want to be accused of race, racism all the time. They don't want to be accused of subscribing to some weird notion of sexuality or something like this that's horrible, makes them a horrible person. They don't want to be told their gender doesn't exist and they have to accept this. They don't want to hear any of it. And so they're going to hear it and they're going to be like, mm, I'm just not going to go to this church. Not because the pastor's got any particular problem. It's because the community becomes obsessed with it. Right. And so the middle starts to fall out. Churches have got to pay for themselves. I hate to make it about money. All organizations have to fund themselves. And when the middle drops out, you're not financially solvent anymore. Unless you have something that's filling the middle. Unless you have something that's pouring money in to keep it going, right? Correct. Right, and I think the scary part about this is, is that you just identified every problem. We were talking about the epistemological problem. We we're talking about the idea of collectivism. You know, when I had stated before that, well, that their assumption or actually their assertion is that all black people think the same, all Latino people think the same, all Asian women think the same, therefore we must have one to have that particular epistemic island that exists so we understand that oppressed community. Exactly, and it's so, to understand that oppression specifically, not to understand, like it's not like they know physics better than somebody else, it's right, to understand right. oppression so they can talk about oppression so or, everybody or can talk case, about oppression. In this case, the gospel. And let me tell you, let me tell you how I know that this is what it does to an organization. Not only have I seen it happen in very, like, since we came out with the work that we've done in the past couple of years looking into this, countless people have emailed us and told us, this is happening in my hiking club. They describe the dynamic. It's the same thing I just described. This is happening in my knitting community. They describe the dynamic. This is what just happened. This is happening in my legal professional association. This nursing. is exactly, but. Nursing. Ner this is where I saw this. We are atheists. We were active in the atheism, the new atheism movement. You know, sorry guys, it happened there. Right. And that's where you start talking about that huge middle who doesn't want to go to conferences, the financial thing that keeps it going, the energy that keeps it going, that keeps it building, keeps it interesting and vibrant. They don't want to go to conferences anymore where it's just going to be people squabbling over who's going to be uh, who, about some racial thing or get accused of something. Gender parity at conferences. Or What's going to happen is there will be factions that build up that are into this and they're going to demand that at conferences, etc., their speakers get priority. And if you don't, you're sexist, you're racist, you're anti this, you're anti that. And if, so what's going to happen is at first people are going to bend over and accept this. Oh, we can't, we don't want to be that. You know, we're trying to do the right thing. So let's put some on there. And that's your first mistake. And then what happens is there's, they're on there. Well, people didn't come to, you're, people didn't necessarily come to see those, but maybe it's fine at first. But then they're gonna take whoever your big names are, whoever your big draw is, whoever your biggest people are. I don't know who they are, whoever they are. Well, I can bet you within a year or two, they're gonna have some secret racism discovered in them and they're problematic and we're not going to go to your conference if that racist is allowed to speak. So now your big draw guy, He's out. He's not allowed up there anymore. And they're gonna replace him with five people that nobody really wants to listen to that's peddling their message. And what happens is people won't go to the events because A, they're less interesting, and B, they're probably gonna get called a name for going. Now they went to this event that was branded as racist. Who wants to go to a racist event? 
How are you gonna financially support that? And it could be a church, it could be an event, it could be whatever. This is what they do. This is how this works. We watched them do it to the atheist movement. You remember, New Atheism was kind of on this rocket ship ride, 2004, Sam Harris wrote The End of Faith. Boom, shot out of a cannon, fly into the stars. Richard Dawkins, God Delusion, right after that. Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. All these big things, and then you start to have, they're the headliners. What happened to them? Sexist, racist, whatever it happened to be, all of a sudden, they start making conferences, and if one of them's gonna be at it, with Richard Dawkins, he got invited to one of these conferences a couple of years ago. They decided that something that he had said about Muslim women was so, or women in, no, it was, it was Muslim women and feminism. He compared, there was a, a, a funny video that came out comparing extreme feminist people to extreme Muslims, showing how they're extremely similar and how they have this weird relationship where they don't criticize each other where you think they would. And he praised this video and they canceled his membership, caused him so much stress, problematized him, accused him of so many things. The poor guy, he's old, he had a stroke, almost died as a result of this. And they just take him off. He's not allowed at conferences anymore. We're gonna put five of our people in instead. Don't worry, it'll draw the same crowd. Well, it doesn't draw the same crowd. That's not how anything works. And so if you guys are gonna introduce this, good luck with that. The old school atheist in me, and I don't mean to be rude to you all, the old school atheist in me is kind of like, <laughs> okay, mission accomplished from, if we were still in the new atheist movement and really up with it, it would have been <laughs> mission accomplished. They screwed themselves. Watch their church split, crumble, fall apart, financially destroy itself. Mm -hmm. Unless there is something that is actually providing the finances. Unless something's funneling be, money in and yeah, propping it up. Have to be. Right, as it might be maybe the new grid work or the new framework, because it has its act together logistically, to but be the new intersectional There will be platform. no organic means for it to sustain itself after just a few years, because they make everything about problems. They complain about stuff constantly. They will find problems yeah, with and whoever your most important paranoid people are. When you go to the conference, et cetera. But I'd like to, if it's okay, I'd like to take a step back because I think what this conversation has been missing so far are ways for people who are watching this to identify when this is happening. Like, how do I know this is happening in my? It doesn't have to be a church; it can be any, literally anything. You said nursing. Yeah, I mean, I'll give it to you about my son's school. Forget church. Okay. Um, so I get the emails, my son was in Portland Public Schools, my daughter is still in Portland Public Schools, and I get emails, and when I see the word equity, boom, I know, that's it. When you start seeing people throw around the word equity, that's it. And if you're fortunate enough to have a conversation with one of these people, I would like to suggest a question, why, excuse me, why do you use the word, why are you using the word equity instead of equality and I would wait and if they don't know the question the answer to that question then they have bought into the whole milieu they have bought into the ideology I receive a barrage of emails for from a university where I teach and the overwhelming majority of these emails and I don't mean like you know nine out of ten I mean like nine hundred and ninety nine thousand out of nine. you know the they're all about the same thing are they do you think that's Oh, how do we distribute grades? How do we write a syllabus? What do we do with an unruly student who stands up and, or what do we do if there's an sh active shooter? Whatever it is, no, none of that. Never, I don't think I've received a single email about that. It's always diversity, 
inclusion equity, always. How do we, you know, and now they're, they're big into, but, but the basic the idea is, how do you know that you're swimming in this pond because it's the old story of the lobster in the pot? And so I think it's, you know, the lobster doesn't know that it's in the pot and then it's just the water keeps getting hotter and then it just dies. Right. So I think the key is you look for the word equity as opposed to the word equality. You look for the constant emails, barrages, messages of the word diversity. We need diversity. And then I would be honest, I would ask, what do you mean by diversity? Right. I don't know, I'm not religious at all, I'm not a Christian. I would ask, you know, what role should ideological diversity play in the church? I mean, it'd be kind of weird, I don't know, to have a Christian church and have like Hindus singing hymns in there, but, uh, but it would seem to me that within the... Well, you haven't been to an Anglican or Episcopalian church, but anyway. No, I'm not. No, no. I'm sure that was I'm a funny joke. I just don't I'm have sorry, access to it. Many. Uh, <laughs> Animal blessing masses and so forth, and yes. No, but I mean, yes. it, it, it's some... There has to be some basic participation in the foundational beliefs, but I would imagine that there's a some leverage for how those things are interpreted. Well, when that gets overridden by everything Jim talks about, that's not, that, that it's, no, it, the, the whole thing will just cease. Yeah, what are you gonna do if somebody comes and says, well, we're gonna make this aspect of our church experience be about anti-racism work, and then- Oh, that's happening. Oh, no, 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 but what are you gonna do? Let's say you're the, the, you're the guy in the pew, and the pastor says, we're gonna make this portion of, of the sermon or the whole church experience be about anti-racism work and you say you know pastor I don't know about that and then that is taken as proof that you need it right. <laughs> you saying wait a minute equals proof you need more of it how do you fight back against that and so what happened I drew to the analogy to the Evergreen State College before what happened there is you had an entire faculty and many in the student body and certainly many in the administration who had bought into this program and understood these concepts and they knew that they had no recourse but to go along they knew and they didn't there's some who just cynically they're like i know this is wrong but i'm scared so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do anything they're just cowards there are others who were afraid in the sense i don't want to be called a racist i don't want to be branded as a racist right. there are others who are i don't want to be a racist, maybe it's right. Maybe there's something to it that I don't get and I don't want to be that. Right. But what you are completely disarmed if what gets taken off the table is your ability to raise your hand and say, wait a minute. Barbara Applebaum, being good, being white, which is about complicity with white supremacy, which is everywhere, always, explained that the only legitimate way to question critical race theory or intersectionality is to ask questions to clarify such that you will have eventual agreement. Kim, uh, not Kimberly Crenshaw, sorry. Uh, Robin D'Angelo gives you one pathway to deal with white fragility. If you disagree, if you stay silent, if you get upset, if you go away, white fragility, Guilty as charged, yeah. you have to agree. Yeah, and, and I, wanna, I wanna add to that, again, I don't know the dimensions of churches, to, to say the least, I'm not a religious man, but I know what happens in the academy and how it functions. And I will tell you, from the beginning of the academy up until a few years ago, it was always acceptable 
always to ask somebody, what is your evidence for that? Right. Always. How do you know that? Right. You always had a, a culture of, you, you know, publishing, well, always is too strong, but certainly for the last 150 years, you had a, a culture of writing, scholarship. It became refined. Publishing, we were, spoken, we were speaking today about what happened to Bruce Gilley. You have a, an idea that's a heterodox idea or something that doesn't comport with the dominant cultural narrative or value system. Bruce Gilley wrote a, uh, this paper, The Case for Colonialism. It is irrelevant what you think about colonialism or you. None of us are colonialist experts. None of us have published in colonialism. Uh, I have n n no, it, the content of the article isn't relevant. What is relevant is that he played the game. He went through the rules, he that's literally his job. Literally his job is to publish and if he doesn't, he gets fired. It's called publish or perish. So they wanted to take his PhD, thousands of signatures online. Uh, they wanted him removed from his job. They wanted his tenure taken away. The journal editor got incredible death threats. They had to retract the article. Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen in churches, but this is the type of ideology, this is the nasty, vituperative, horrific ideology and the sorts of people you see who subscribe to this ideology. It is wicked because they perceive themselves as doing the Lord's work to eradicate racism. And this is a manifestation of racism. And of course, we don't want actual true racism. Nobody, And the thing well, is, is that what's being introduced is, I think as, as James and I had talked about the other day, is that critical race theory especially is introducing strategic racism. Yeah, and what, what it's also doing, that the example I gave you was an extreme one, but I meant it to illustrate that what's happening is a culling of voices that don't go along with the dominant narrative. We cull them. I'm telling you, don't believe anything about the church all you need to do is look at academia. All you need to do is look at where it, James Damore from Google. Look at other places where this has happened. If you voice an idea that in any way could be considered anti-egalitarian or would you can look it up with the with Evergreen, the Evergreen situation. Brett Weinstein even raised the question, where is the evidence? Where is the evidence that Evergreen is a racist institution? The evidence doesn't support this. What's the evidence? And do you know what they told him? You asking for evidence is proof of your racism. Right. That is the... Because you would just believe. That's a Kafka, Kafka trap. So what I'm saying to you is... That what's a Kafka trap again? Just a Kafka trap is... Go ahead. So... Uh, Not too long, but... <laughs> a Kafka trap is when you are going to be... If, if, if say you're charged with a crime of some kind and you confess to it, then you're found guilty, right? But you're charged with a crime and you say, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. You give any kind of a thing and then your response is taken as proof of yeah, your guilt. That's evidence your denial that is proof of your guilt. Right. That's a so Kafka a, trap. It's, the whole thing is a big Kafka trap. You can't say no, no. But my point to you about the academy was that we have created academic institutions where asking for evidence for things like safe spaces, trigger warnings, and microaggressions is evidence of racism. Asking for evidence in, in an institution whose whole point is to look for evidence and justify arguments. And why? Because critical race theory operates on the assumption that knowledge is evidence, evidentiary knowledge is just a white man's tool. 
It is the man's tool. It is the Western tool. And outside of that paradigm where that's valued, it doesn't mean anything. So it is an inherently white supremacist question. It is a tool that was invented by white people for white people to maintain their hegemonic domination over other views. I mean, how could, forget about an institution, how could you do anything? without asking people, well, why do you know that? Why do you think? What's your evidence that? Why do you believe it? Why should I do this? What should I do? I mean, you don't do that with your finances. You don't, you don't do that with your diet. You don't do that with, you go to people who have cultivated an expertise. And it's also not, you're not being a Berean. Right. Which is one of the Christian foundations in terms of making sure that, look, whatever you're telling me, I want to make sure that I'm comparing it against what we believe to be objective truth in terms of the scripture, which right. is our authority. Well, you're not doing that. Right. Or that you, when you are doing that, you have to look at it from a different perspective right. now, as opposed to where you didn't. And the, here's the funny thing. Well, it's, it's not funny. This is serious. Is that you're coming into this without any real true deep knowledge on what's really happening within Christian churches, uh, I would say Protestant Christian churches, uh, Pentecostal churches, Roman Catholic churches, within Islam. I can assure you that's it's, true. It's, 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 well, I know that it is, and that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I mean, it's I'm coming, not, I don't. It's coming, and so what I'm trying to tell a lot of the folks that I've been speaking to, they're like, this is happening, it's an attack on the Protestant evangelical church. Like, no, it's a ta an attack on everything. Right. Yeah. Everything. I can give you an example of how deeply impossible it is. We've talked about, oh, you didn't agree, whatever. Let's take another step. You say, okay, I want to do my anti-racism work. How do I do it? And they tell you to go read some stuff. Well, if you didn't agree with every conclusion, you didn't engage properly. You're engaging in what's called privilege preserving epistemic pushback. That's Allison Bailey. Okay, so let's say you say, well, I want to do my anti-racism work. What do I need to do? And like, well, you need to understand the oppression from the perspective of somebody who experiences it because it's the only people who know it. So you need to find a person of color to teach you about that. And you say, you're a person of color. Will you teach me about that? No, they can't because it's epistemic exploitation. Epistemic exploitation, Nora Berenstain, 2016, wrote about epistemic exploitation, which occurs anytime a person with privilege or power asks a marginalized person to explain their lived experience and do that work such that they understand, which improves them and makes them a good dominant person who has done their anti-racism work. So you're exploiting that you can only possibly learn about marginalization or oppression by talking to somebody who actually experiences it. There's no other possible way. But to do that is a form of exploiting them, which is racist. You can only learn about racism by talking to somebody who experiences racism, which is everybody who is <laughs> that has the identity, whether they claim to or not. And then if you ask them to explain it, which is the thing that they demand of you, you're exploiting them, which is racism. This is what their theory, this is the, this is the state of critical race theory since roughly 2010. This is what the theory says. And so it is infecting every field. You cannot every win. Field. Every, every field. Every field. Every, right. Even the STEM fields in, in the academy. Yeah. Right. The way they do that is they create a parallel thing. Right. Critical nutrition studies next to nutrition studies. They start picking at nutrition studies until they get taken seriously. Feminist geography. Feminist geography until that gets taken seriously. You could go uh, post-colonial theology, critical race theology. 
So then you have theology, critical race theology, post-colonial theology, you have, oh, there's three different kinds of theology. But what, what do you have here? Well, you have this one that's focused on justice of race, you have this one that's focused on justice of uh, whatever colonialism represents. Then you have the one that's not focused on justice. Is that the one you want? You want the one that's not justice? So they create this parallel thing that's designed to complain about and point out problems with the, with the main thing to give itself legitimacy. This is how a vampire looks like a person. He called it a vampire ideology. It looks like a person, you invite it into your house and it can bite you on the neck and drain your blood and kill you and extend its own life. It looks like the thing, oh, critical race theology. It's a form of theology. It's legitimized as a form of theology by the very name all it does is attack the other kind of theology, and then eventually when it gets enough credibility, it sets itself in opposition and says, well, we're the, we're the critical race kind, you're the chauvinist kind, pick whichever one you want. Sure, you're free. Be a chauvinist. Be a racist. This is how it operates. Yeah. I wish yeah. I was exaggerating. Yeah. I yeah. wish I hadn't read this theory to right. know this. And the other part of this is when you see this manifest in organizations, and don't think, oh, well, the pastor hasn't read this book. So therefore, we're safe from this. Well, it is a, it's like a pond that does ripples. There are, there are, um, I lost my thought because what I wanted to say, what I wanted to say in this is the conclusion that I wanted to, to give, I don't know why I find this so heartbreaking. It's kind of emotional. I don't know why it's emotional because I'm not religious at all, but. Bring it out, man. It just, it, it will just destroy a community. Because I've seen it destroy every community. The, I've seen it destroy the communities that I love. And the, one of the ways that it destroys it is it creates a toxic, caustic silence. You're constantly afraid that you're going to transgress. Yeah, you're, and, and even when I teach, and I teach ethics, I don't teach you know, math or accounting. He taught math. But uh, when you're in the center of this, you're not just walking on egg cells. At a certain point, there was a great article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and actually Peter Brown, who's a, who's a noted anthropologist from uh, Emory, uh, weighed in on this, and when he weighed in on this, I mean, some big names have been, been weighed in on this. The idea that not only is there a silence, but there are things you won't talk about, you won't teach, and I guess people go to church you know, I'm thinking of my grandparents, they went to church. They always sat, the Catholic church, they always sat in the second to last pew and they would bring me there with them. And, you know, everybody was really nice to me when I went there. And it was in Brookline, Massachusetts. And uh, I just think of like just decent people going about their day, doing their thing, and then just having this weight on them and really a kind of. It's even worse than it's the worse silence. It's worse than silence. Like you're, yeah, it's you, say there's things than that silence. you say there's things you can't talk about, there's yeah. things you can't teach. There are people you can't associate with. Right. Right. Okay? So let's say that you get accused of being racist and not doing your anti-racism work, and it gets around, that's the rumor, you know, Michael doesn't do his anti-racism work, he's kind of a racist. Hanging out with you is legitimizing that. So you can't be hung out with. So put your scarlet R right. on your chest. So it's not right. just it's silence. Happening. It's yeah. not just silence. It's the it's the death of friendship. Well, let me ask you. Uh, you're you're religious. I'm not religious. I haven't been to church in a very long time. 
I'm supposed to confess that from my previous, <laughs> my previous religious experience. We'll work on that someday. Someday. So I'm confessing now, everybody. Um, not to make light, but what is a church if it's not a community? Yeah. If you take the nothing. community down, what is a church? What the ecclesia is the called out ones, called out of the world into community. Yeah. They are in the world, but not of it. And but now what's happening is that you must be of the world. You must be of the intersection. And, and I, wa I want to go back to something he said, because I had been thinking about that. It was in Coet, but when you said it, I was like, wow. I have had in the back of my mind that if this were at the height of the New Atheist movement, and when you know, we were extremely involved in that, if I wanted a plan, if I were going to design a plan <laughs> to bring <laughs> right. Oh yeah, I know to where bring you're going. the whole thing down. The whole all of Christianity. Let's end Christianity. <laughs> how do we do it? Yeah. How would you do it? Make them woke. Yep. So it'll eat itself from the inside. Yep. And then I'd be. I'm not the old guard atheist I, refer, I, I alluded to earlier. Um, uh, people can believe what they want. I'm happy about that. Let them. Then we'll talk. You know, we'll figure this out. We'll figure out what's true together. Uh, but that's not what the goal is. If I wanted to end the they church, they don't like, want to know what's true. If no, but if I were the old school angry atheist, it's like let's just throw rocks at the cathedral till it falls down. I'd start making woke <laughs> pastors and sending them in because they're going to tear everything apart. Yeah. Because they're going to make everything about identity. It's inevitable, and that's all they talk about: justice, justice, justice. What does justice mean? Justice means something to do with equity, inclusion, blah blah blah. What does inclusion mean? Inclusion means that nobody ever gets offended. How are you gonna do that? Yep. Censor speech. So you don't talk about things. You don't, being good, being white, something, something complicity. I'm telling you right now, you we're giving you the trajectory of your own demise. We're, we're just telling you, this is what's gonna happen. As an right. old, if, if I was still the angry atheist that I was at one point in my life, that I think was a fool, I would, this is the plan that I would have hatched. <laughs> Peter and I would have been like, <laughs> No. We know what to do. <laughs> no, but, uh, he, no, but now let's take perspective on that. Yeah. I, I know we're laughing about that, but then think about it. That's not just being done in the Christian church and within, no, within the pale of orthodoxy. Now, it's happening of everywhere. It's happening everywhere. And that's you, why we are deeply concerned about this problem. You, you can't turn on the TV and watch an ad for a razor right. without being hit in the face. You can't, we said, buy, buying a, a bag of Oreos without it having a gender pronoun you know, push with it, That's you know, the on culture. the cookies. But then you have the American Psycholo Psychological Association saying that traditional masculinity is getting close to a mental disorder. You know who would have had a field day with that? Michel Foucault, right. who's documenting the way that madness has been scripted by doctors and psychologists in order to uh, get rid of dissidents. Yep. Michel Foucault, the po Mr. Postmodernism, or Dr. Postmodernism, I guess, if you want, the, the Joker figure to bat, you know, the Batman style Joker figure of this whole enterprise would have had a field day with the fact that the APA has decided to assign traditional masculinity as a medical condition, a psychiatric condition that needs treatment. Well, and think about what this does as well in the field of apologetics, is that you have had men that have taken apologetics, uh, especially with the challenges of modernism that have come in and been able to defend the faith rigorously Men like Dr. R.C. Sproul that passed away a few years ago, men like Dr. James White, uh, other men that have been really, truly uh, coming 
to the scriptures as well as historically, as well as the general revelation around them, and really crafting, this demolishes that practice. There is no more actual progress in that field, and then yeah, even until our they start ability- being canceled. Right, yep. well, the that's, what's that's that? the next thing. Cancel. Yeah, they'll oh, yes. just be canceled. They'll be canceled. That's they already have happening. reviews, they're canceled. And what you're gonna hear, if I might predict it, what you're gonna hear over and over again is they're gonna hold up some icon of some identity, a woman, racial minority, sexual minority, something, and they'll say a church that doesn't have room for this person doesn't have room for any of us. Actually, I don't know if you know that, but that's actually was just said by Dr. Russell Moore at the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> what did I tell you? In, in reference to Beth Moore. Who She's they, a woman. Exactly. What did I tell you? Right, so the, the push for egalitarianism, the push for equity within the church. Right. So that's actually happening. And here's the scary part about the whole thing. So he didn't thing. even need a crystal ball or revelation to predict no, that. No, I have, I know the theory. Because we've, we, we've, uh, seen, we've it. seen it put into we've practice. We've seen it over and over again. We saw it in the skeptic movement, we've seen it. So in other words, the church needs to understand, and, and of course they need to go back to pointing towards objective truth, but they need to understand that this battle is not just within the church itself, and that's where their main focus needs to be, absolutely. But they need to realize that this is civilizational. Mm. And with that intent, where this is everywhere, this is a civilizational battle at this point. And there are times where, yes, we can learn and, and be brought, for, because this is new. This hit us like a ton of bricks. I knew it was coming um, and tried to prepare people with it. And they thought that I was wearing a tinfoil hat when I was trying to explain, this is what's going to happen. Here's who's gonna be doing it and so forth. No, Mike, there's that person. And unfortunately, it's a lot of the leadership that has been, have been trusted voices. That's what happened to the Evergreen, so yeah. It's so un Did they start bringing in new leadership yet yeah. that's in on this? Right. So, so have they done that? With bringing in new leadership? Specifically bringing in new leadership who's, well, who's bought into they, the plan. What they've done is help to raise another sure, group, they're, they're, but, but, but some of the core leaders have been, and there's one particular uh, organization that I would name, it's the Gospel Coalition, that has been around for about 10, 11 years, which has a purposed intent, I believe. I know that Tim Keller would re reject the, the, the label of postmodern. He would look at the new modern but certainly his concepts as well as you know bringing Derrida and Foucault into the conversations and so forth uh, really raising the, the concepts in a positive sense of Crenshaw of others that you've referred to as well uh, and as well introducing these ideas of your church should look like your community it, it, it should is your is your church uh, colorful in essence so an article by Joe Carter and with these concepts, they don't understand that no, this stuff is being done everywhere. Everywhere. Well, that's what we... You name the group, yeah, it's that, happening or will be happening to us And that's one of the concerns that we have is that this is an assault on Western civilization. This is an assault on science. This is an assault on reason, on the role of evidence and belief formation. This is an absolute assault on the constituent values of Western civilization. Well, if you look at the colonial theory side of it, which is just one dimension of many of the yeah, intersectional dimensions, good. it's explicitly against the West. They're, what's post-colonial? Well, you say it's against colonialism, but then you start looking at what they say. Are they against the fact that some, you know, Chinese colonized someplace? No. Are they against the fact that they hate imperialism? Are they against the fact that like pretty much every culture ever had empires that could get one? If they could kill enough people to make an empire, then they had one? No. Which one are they concerned about? Western. One and only. Right. 
Right. I think that, if you don't mind, why don't you speak to the Hong Kong situation, if you don't mind? I don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know that there's I do a, some too. Yeah, go ahead. There's a huge protest recently that, that occurred in Hong Kong. Uh, and the, the part that I know a little bit about, the very interesting part that I know a little bit about, is that the, cul this, the, the culmination of this protest, the millions, I think, of protesters came out in rejection of, I think, Chinese rule. And what they did is they made their way into the center of whatever they were trying, outside of what they were protesting. They made their way to the lectern, and of all the symbols they could have hung up, did they hang up some kind of like revolutionary flag? Did they hang up this flag? No, they hung up the British colonial flag. Okay, so they were making this statement of some kind saying that the fact that we were a British colony somehow very relevant and valuable to us. And the result has been that nobody knows how to talk about this. Nobody knows what to do because colonialism by the West, which British, is supposed to be the most powerful evil force in the world. And here you have this group who's clearly in some sense being oppressed. But what did they hearken to was the fact that they were colonized. Right. So there's no framework to talk about that right. in realistic terms available. And so there's this huge void of being able to talk about this in real terms. And so what th this is the dynamic I can also describe. When you have an utter void of being able to talk about a thing in sane terms, who's going to fill the void? The lunatics who are willing to jump in and say this craziest stuff. That's who's going to fill in. And people want an explanation for stuff. So they're going to be like, oh, well, that guy's saying something. He's got a lot of passion. Probably got something to it. So this is another problem is it hollows out the ability to have any conversation that goes off script, which usually they try not to allow or they problematize out of existence, but then when one comes up so big, there's no space to have the conversation, so you can guarantee it's gonna get filled by some lunatic. Right, right. Inevitable. And the, and the thing is, is that what this does is it shuts down our conversation because the unifier for those that are accepting this discipline and really this new religion of intersectionality is that that's where the conversation needs to take place, therefore, we can't have that conversation Absolutely. anymore. And, and we, so, we, can't, we can't go back to, well, what do you believe true and give me a reason. Right. And so here's, here's part of the, the, the So we problem. can't even argue. Right, well, here's part of the problem. So not only can we not argue, but already your voices collectively are removed from the academy systematically. And yours are. And, and mine are. Um, and I know for a fact when this interview comes out, we are going to get grief. You know, I don't know if you know Veggie Tales. Yes. Yeah. Well, the guy did that Phil Vicious, a friend of mine. He's a really good guy. He stayed in my home. He's just a lovely human being. And I remember when I went on his podcast, just to kind of build bridges, understand what he know, just a good dude. Um, I got unbelievable grief from people that I did not go at him. That somehow I have to have an antagonistic or relationship with him or has he been my enemy or something or I know you're I know for a fact if you haven't already you're gonna get grief for sitting by well, and what we can do is like let's make a date a few years from now well, we're gonna go at this but the thing is is that we need to preserve the opportunity and the ability and the platforms to be able to have those arguments without being completely deplatformed no, that's right because we're actually looking to preserve the opportunity to search for right. objective truth in a correspondent manner. Right, and my point is that just because you have a different, a totally different view of metaphysics, you believe in yes. God, and it doesn't mean 
that we don't want to get rid of plastic in the oceans like we talked about today. That doesn't mean that when the aliens come down there isn't a common threat that we need to do. That doesn't mean that we don't agree upon basic rules of engagement with, the, right. with each other. Right. We agree on the basis of it. Now we have substantive content differences, but right. I don't look at you as my enemy. I think you're wrong about some things. Your your belief system is not correct, and I'm. You would have to think that about mine if you sincerely held your belief. And, and we're both citizens of this nation, right? And somehow we have to be neighbors, and we have to get along. That's exactly correct. And and the, within this great experiment that's known as America, that has to exist without demonizing the others. Yeah, my. I don't know if you are familiar with the. He's deceased now, but my mentor. He actually wrote. Jim and I published a piece with him, and I think he wrote the forward to your book. Victor Stenger was a particle physicist and one of the world's preeminent leading atheists. And I went to a conference, I really, he was kind of a mentor to me, he was just a great, great guy. He was one of the most hardcore atheists I have ever, I mean this guy was, all, he was, he was all in. He was all in. <laughs> uh, he actually wrote one of the only books that actively, you know, many of the atheist arguments are there's not sufficient arguments to believe in God, and then new atheists came and said if you believe in the base of insufficient evidence, you're somehow irrational. Stengel wrote a book claiming that there, that not only is there an insufficient evidence, but the evidence actually shows that there's no God, and he wrote about that. Anyway, my point is that he was telling me a story that his neighbor, I think he lived in Colorado, his neighbor was a Muslim, and they got along awesome. Right. Well, actually, I have a lot of Muslims that I get along with. Right. I care about them. Right. It's like, I care about you. And care and is I another care about value. you. I empathetically right. care about you as a human being. Right. Uh, as my neighbor, as my friends. Right. And, and yet, we're able then to have these discussions and even have our debates with each other. Right. And that's because part... Go if ahead. you're in and the church, it seems like that's kind of the point. I mean, I've read, exactly. I've read your book a couple of times. And if I picked up the message, I mean, it's sort of... How do you evangelize if you don't talk to people who don't... Relationship evangelism. Yeah, how are you going to do it, though, if you're not allowed to talk to people who have the wrong idea? Well, how are we going to live in a country that has divergent beliefs, that has different beliefs, without... Wasn't that the founding principle? Right. Well, and the thing is, is that the, the, the real goal is to eliminate us from having any of the arguments... That is absolutely and correct. ...and to really hash it out, because there needs to... The collectives that are having actually end up with a unification. So where the idea is, is that we must get rid of tribes. We must break up these different factions and so forth. There's a unification model in the end, which means a unification of thought, of belief, that would end all wars and end all conflict and so forth. That's the end. And that's really where things are, are moving. If, if, if everyone can't figure out, well, why is it that you know, I can't watch anything it's without hearing the, great, the word. I can't get on a plane. Worked. That's always a great belief. You know, without them going through the whole safety instructions of the plane, without them somehow at the end having a forty-second commercial uh, with the owner of the airline talking about their commitment to equity. Well, why is that? And so everybody's need to take a step back and have a satellite view of this yes. to understand that we have to have impossible conversations. Right. Uh, and that we want to have those conversations continue, but we also don't want a statist force on the outside of us saying, oh, you cannot have those conversations unless those conversations are had in this fashion and in this manner with these epistemic realities around you. Otherwise, that's an invalid question that's or an invalid conversation, and you can't have that's that That's the fundamentalist impulse is what that is. Right. It's the fundamentalist impulse. It is this utopian belief that if you just somehow made everybody think the same way, then what would there be to fight about? 
we all agree there's nothing left to fight. So if you could just get everybody on the same doctrine, the same orthodox doctrine, if you get the same idea, and everybody said, no problem. Yep. That's the that's actually the statement upon that's the belief upon which the the argument of the Islam as a religion of peace is is made. If everybody was a Muslim, we'd have peace. Right, right. Well, the thing is, is that, and that's exactly the same move here. It's also here. false, by the way. Right. It is false. <laughs> it is false. Because what's going to happen is people are going to dig in and have their own interpretations, and they're going to start, especially in this they case, already do. they're going to start claiming their own special axis that they Well, we'll think truth. about from this perspective, then, is that what you have is new societal dogmatics that are not just being pressed upon the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about in and out of the pale of orthodoxy, also, and and I understand there'd be some criticisms, but also talking about Roman Catholicism, talking about the Orthodox, talking about the the Protestants, talking about every strain of Protestantism that you can imagine, both Calvinists and non-Calvinists, Reformed and non-Reformed, people that are dispensational, covenantal, credo uh, Baptist, pedo Baptist, and then outside, all of us, including you, including everyone that's walking around this city in New York City today, is going to have the same dogmatics pushed down upon us legislatively through corporate yeah. means and, and you know what economically you know what terrifies me that you haven't even mentioned they'll be morally pressured to adopt the same epistemology yeah and that's the thing this is the new religion yep and I think both of us uh, are concerned that we need to be able to stand up against it and we do, and we need allies, we need people to help us, yes. because I genuinely believe that this is tearing apart the fabric of Western civilization. I mean, look, as just a, very briefly, Andy No was the journalist who was attacked in Portland. The big thing now, it went from punching Nazis, people who self-professed to be neo-Nazis, to punching Democrats who are, no. No, who, definitely not that. No, no, no don't, don't punch punching Republicans, punching right. Republicans. Right. To, to uh, milkshaking is the big thing, uh, and Andy No was a journalist in Portland, and the mayor Ted Wheeler, who's a disgrace, was told to stand, told the police to stand down, and they basically beat him, and he had brain hemorrhage, brain hemorrhages, and I saw him. I went into, with Brett. I went to visit him in the hospital afterward, but but the point is that that is not. With all due respect, I don't want to say Bangladesh, something, but that is not a third world country somewhere. This is Portland, Oregon, in the United States in 2019. That's right. It's and intimidation. We, when I do events, I have to have the SWAT team. When Dave Rubin and I, with Christine Hoff Summers, did an event, we had the SWAT team come in. People were threatening to throw dirty diapers in me at me for the Demore event with Helen Pluckrose. Bricks and grenades were mentioned. Of Bricks course, and those grenades. Were they empty caught threats, one of the guys who said he was going to cut the wires thing. So, but what what I I, I believe that watching some of this stuff play out might be very powerful for the people viewing this. And I would recommend watching Mike Nana's YouTube channel and looking at the canoe video. Yeah, look at what happened at Evergreen. He has a three-part documentary, Netflix quality on YouTube. Watch that. He goes through, I mean, it's See so how crazy. It I'm not even gonna, it, you know, everybody has to get in this canoe and they're watching, it's a Native American. I mean, it's so utterly bizarre. I don't know what they mean at by- an American university. Yeah, by soft white intersectionality or whatever it is they're trying, I don't know what they mean by that for sure, but I can tell you that if whatever that resolution nine is, whereas nice thing, whereas nice thing, whereas nice thing, we resolve to let's at least include critical race theory as a tool, 
if that, depending on how far down that road that goes, the Evergreen State College is at the end of that road. Yep. That's what's happened. That's what happens when it's institutional, when it's put into an institution and put into action, right. where a sufficient number of, especially the administrative class and the the people in the pews or the students, if you will, take Top it up. Top down, bottom up. That's what's going to happen. It's inevitable. Right. Squeezing the middle. Guys, thank but, you. Yeah. Let my my final thing is I think we should meet in a couple years. And I think we should go over this, and I think we should take a look at this video, take a look at the very specific predictions that we've given you, and fill those in with examples. Specific churches, specific regions, specific events that have happened. I'm telling you, this is going to play out exactly like we said and it And that's the, the tough part, is that people that have been hearing me warn them about this for four to five years now, and really try to, to help the leadership understand what was coming, eventually they had to say, okay, everything that you said was going to happen has happened. How did you know this? And the thing is, is that now, again, almost prophetically, and of course I believe it's because of providence, but prophetically you are right now stating to, to not just, look, and this, you could have this conversation about what's happening within the Christian church, but again, this could be about anything. This is happening. It's already and what, happened. And what he has just said, what you have said, what James has said as well, he's pretty much laid out the groundwork of the strategy and how this is done. Exactly, the tactics. And the you have right. a choice of speaking up, standing up against it. They're going to call you a racist. Right. Uh, if you a say Nazi. that you, a Nazi, if you say that you love this country, they're going to call you a, a white nationalist. White as opposed to somebody that, hey, I love my country and I love the freedoms that I have. Uh, you know, my, my family and my abuela and abuelo from Cuba, yeah, they got out of that. Uh, my wife's family, left the new territory of China and right. came to Hong Kong and, and look Kowloon. what they're doing to Andy No's family who's from Vietnam. From Vietnam. He's a gay journalist from Vietnam. They're saying his family were, were collaborators. Right. Exactly. So anybody that is fleeing something to the freedoms that they have in America uh, that we have by our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and, and honestly that is sourced from the Declaration forward, is that all of that is under threat at this point. And those things that allow us to be able to have disagreements, right. and intense disagreements even, right. uh, but yet in the, not inflicting violence, that is about ready to possibly disappear if this is allowed to take over. Let me, let me throw in the other side of that. And for what? Let's oh. answer the and for what question. And Because yeah. I know a lot of people hear this stuff and they, want, they care, they want to help. They want to help. So let's take the most charitable, simple, what are you doing? Why are you wanting, why would you say, yeah, bring this intersectional critical race theory tool, post-colonial theology, whatever, into my church? Why? Because you care, because you want to help. You are worried that, you know, various identity groups have been cheated in significant ways historically throughout the country. There are still lingering effects from that where there are some disparities that, that are problems. And you want to do the right thing. But how is giving somebody a pass? Like, I don't know a whole lot about what it takes to become a theologian or a pastor, but how on earth, you know what it takes to be a, a knowledgeable professional, to say, your identity gets you most of the way there. How are you helping, uh, let's say it's a black person or a Hispanic person, how are you helping them wrestle with the challenges that make you understand your faith or understand your knowledge or understand whatever it is, how are you helping them get 
more knowledgeable and deeper into that by giving them a pass and, and in some sense saying, you know what, you don't really have to work as hard because you have special knowledge automatically. You're not helping yeah, special them. special knowledge that's not even related necessarily to the thing in question. You're not helping them. How are you helping them by making everything about a divisive issue, which moral and psychologists and moral sociologists have identified. If you start getting people to focus on a victimhood, oh, well, my situation as a XYZ has led me to experience this and that, and it's hard and it's terrible. The psychology, moral and psychology and moral sociology are clear on this. It induces a state of what's called competitive victimhood. If I tell you about how hard my day was, your gut reaction for most people most of the time is to say, oh yeah, my hard day was. Because you are trying to empathize in the most clumsy way possible. And so how are you helping them by making the issue come up where all of a sudden you have the, the minority group or whatever saying, oh, well, it's been like this for me in the church and this is how I've been oppressed and victimized. And then all of a sudden the white majority is like, yeah, you want to hear how we've been oppressed? Are you trying to start a race war? Right. So I don't mean to speak in such terrible blunt terms. Are you trying to start a race war? Is that what you're actually after? To, to team up all the different minority groups under a banner of intersectional as if there's unity there and cause them to wage war on the dominant group by getting them each to focus on their grievances and find reasons to dislike each other and feel cheated by the other. Look at what happens when you start talking about, oh, you know, we need equity because, you know, minority group XYZ has been excluded from the workplace, blah, blah, blah. So we need an equity initiative like affirmative action. What happened when that happened? Whether, the, you know, there's a debate to be had about the effectiveness of these policies or how they should or should not be impl implemented, fine. But what happens? You have a reactionary group that imme immediately emerges and says, ah, well, you're just cheating me out of my position. And, oh, well, my boss is only my boss because she's black. She's a black woman. She's not competent. I don't believe in her competence because she got the job in a cheap way. How are you helping people by setting them up in that situation? So if you want to help, do it the right way. Do it with the liberal approach. You try to raise people up through rigorous epistemologies, there are rigorous epistemologies. Don't buy into this belief that, oh, well, you know, that's just the white man's tool. Knowledge is the white man's tool? How are we in a skyscraper? You know, it's, don't buy into principles that violate the liberal ethics, and I don't mean that like politically liberal conservative, I mean that in the, the broad sense, the, the enlightenment principles that have led us to be able to generate knowledge that every single time you do anything, you do a little experiment, no matter who you are. You think it's different? Every time I pull out my cell phone and I make a call, you know how much physics went into making that stupid thing work? And does it, every time I call my wife on my cell phone, hey wife, I love you, how are you? Every time I do that, I do an experiment on that physics to say that it works. Does it matter if I'm a black person? If a black person picks up a phone, does it have to work differently? No, and they're doing the same experiment to prove that the knowledge that went into building that technology was sound. How are you helping people by saying, let's throw that out? You're not raising people up. There are ways to raise people up. We know there are ways to raise people up. We know there are ways yeah, to appeal to our, 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 our contract of the nation was all men are created equal. Live up to that. What are you doing by adopting this crap, which is a form of grievance politics? We called it grievance studies 
for a reason. Well, this is grievance Christianity. Well, it's grievance. Yeah, it's Everything. grievance applied. It's grievance. It's in grievance, every grievance, grievance, field. grievance, all the way down. Beware grievance. 